We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Architects do spend a lot of their time designing the buildings that make up our cities and neighbourhoods, but in the background there's a lot of work being done to ensure the buildings of tomorrow will live up to higher standards than the buildings built in the past. Over the next four episodes, we're going to be talking to architects who have worked to inform people in government and the public that architecture across many spectrums can benefit the community. Our guest in this episode is Malcolm Middleton, who is the former Queensland Government Architect and Director of Malcolm Middleton Architects. Malcolm shares why it's so important to talk to the right people in the right places, what the role of the government architect is, and how design guidelines in Queensland have encouraged the construction of better infrastructure. I'll now pass over to Genevieve Vella, who is an Imagine Committee member based in Queensland. Let's jump in. Hi, Malcolm. Uh, wait, thank you for joining us today. Um, today we're talking about uh, architecture and advocacy and specifically as part of your experience as being government architect but also involved in the architecture profession quite extensively throughout your career. I thought we'd kick off with a broad one about what is the role of government architect and, and during your time, what were some of the responsibilities and guiding principles of the role during your tenures as government architect? Well, thanks, uh, Genevieve. Big, it's sort of a big question, but the the answer changes and it changes because the government's change and it changes because policy positions change and the role of the government architect ends up perhaps in different departments at different times and during my time, I had a journey through four different departments uh, and each department has its own culture and its own approach. So, But underpinning all of that, the basic role is an advocacy role. It's advocating for good design and for good design decision-making and for good design policy to occur inside government and in the project work where government engages externally with other agencies, local governments, federal governments, individuals, whatever might be the case. And that's what you can make of it. You know, it's fundamentally there as a voice for the best outcomes to occur with Capital Works. That's wonderful. Specifically for you, was there um, any particular experiences or relationships that drew you to the role of government architect? Well, I've always been a great believer in... The profession itself of architecture is a is a political profession, not a party political one, but it's a a small p political profession that delivers its work in public, and it requires patronage and support to get good outcomes. You you will never find a good capital works outcome that's of a high quality without there being a patron of some kind, uh, and often more than one and over an extended period of time. So I've always believed that architects need to work with other professionals right across the construction consulting area, whether it's with engineers, landscape architects, 
town planners, cost consultants. You've got to be able to work with them all. If you want to lead a team, you've got to be able to demonstrate that you're listening. So if you want a good outcome, you've got to go further than just a normal piece of work. No great projects happen with day-to-day activity. They always happen with a degree of passion. And uh, you have to be able to sell your ideas to all kinds of people that are always turning up to shoot them down. So, um, you know, it's about collaboration. You mentioned there uh, that the role of the government architects is really about collaboration and that's key to advocating for great design outcomes uh, for the city but also for uh, spaces and policy. You mentioned that you work with a lot of other industrial board professional bodies within Queensland that also provided advisory roles but also collaboration in a number of different items. What were some of those groups that you had to work with? Well, in my professional time, I had quite a number of groups that I felt close to and who I invested some of my professional time in supporting. In the early part of uh, my career, I was quite active in the Property Council in Queensland. I was, in fact, Queensland president for a term. But equally, I was on the Queensland Heritage Council for four years uh, on various committees and or the actual council itself. A very different sort of a structure, one quite specifically focused and a very important body for setting standards and implementing um, heritage legislation. And that has influenced, of course, my thinking a, a lot. I sat on the South Bank Design Advisory Panel during the process of the Denton Corker Marshall major review master plan for South Bank, which is really what you see on the ground now. And that was um, a very interesting and productive period of seven, eight years where we reviewed a lot of major projects. Uh, And again, that's that collaborative structure of bringing design conversations to the table. And it was chaired at different times by Michael Kenniger, then Catherine Bull, very senior architect, landscape architect backgrounds, John Simpson as the master architect. You know, it was a group of good thinkers and people who wanted to get on and do good work, but also it was a group that could negotiate. We had the power to get around the table and talk to the individual project proponents, and that was a a very enjoyable time. Again, I I was awards director for the Institute, and that that time took a couple of years of travelling around when you could travel. Uh, Nobody can remember those days now, but uh, (laughs) we we used to visit every project, and um, that was a very, very good experience. But I also had close relationships with the Institute of Landscape Architects and the Planning Institute. And again, there's always a slightly different point of view, depending on who's leading particular project interest. And you need to understand uh, the motivations of all the different players in our consulting industry and work out how to get the message across in a way that people will support you. It's something we chatted about before and thinking about advocacy at that that state and that higher level where you're working with quite bigger projects and bigger pieces of policy, it's still reflective of that the design process that architects, consultants and other design professionals come in at a at a micro project level and having the right voices around the table to get the best outcome for a project is you said quite similar to advocacy in a way and making sure you're getting all the right voices in the room. And the role of the government architect is kind of to bring those people together uh, based on what, what, what we've been talking about. 
or to advocate for uh, that to happen. And the critical issue for design, and it's always been the issue and always will be the issue, is that you have to be in the room early. Uh, there's no point joining a project that's already sort of headed off down the path and has got budgets and methods for delivery and a, a kind of perhaps a, a brief that may not be you know, the right brief uh, and then try and change everything because you, you meet resistance. So I've always pushed the agenda that the designers must be there at the beginning. And that's it sounds simple and sounds very logical. It's very hard to achieve. How do you get yourself into the room at the right time with the people who are making the calls, making the decisions about whatever project it might be? And that is a position that you can say to people, doesn't matter what the project is, if you want a good outcome, get your designers in the room and with the right designers in the room to the right brief or to help you writing the brief early in the process and uh, then you manage it from there. But if you can't do that, then it's much harder, much harder to get good outcomes. Yeah, definitely agree with that. Were there any specific projects or initiatives or body of work that you think were successful from that collaboration point of view that resulted in a good outcome from your perspective as government architect? Oh, yes. And over the 10-year period, I think there were a number of very successful project uh, initiatives that we took up. Brief summary, perhaps you can look at things like Q-Design, the the policy document that really is active now. And I see it now written into various project briefs as a, as a standard to meet. There was the Urban Design Review Panel, which lives on and comes and goes depending on the enthusiasm to engage with it and who's on it. There was the, uh, the Missing Middle Density and Diversity Done Well competition that we ran with the Planning Institute and the Urban, Urban UDIA and planning section of government as well as our office. That produced some very important ideas for particularly social housing and then they were able to be leveraged into a number of demonstration projects, all of which are rolling out now. Some are finished to very high standards, others are coming on stream over the uh, next uh, few years. But that was a, a really important thing. You know, we ran the competition for the ferry terminals, which ultimately were delivered by Brisbane City Council, but the competition was run by the state government. And uh, you know, if you think about that flood in 2011, the whole process of getting the funding, conducting a competition, enabling the uh, winners of that competition to deliver that work and then getting them built, that all took five or six years. But the end result is, I think, a very handsome suite of terminal buildings on the river, uh, none of which have been tested because there hasn't been a flood since. But the idea of really thinking that through from square one was a very important piece of work. But the other piece of work I think that we did that was very important, which is still uh, to see the light of day officially, but you can look it up in the State Library, is the strategy for the City Brisbane strategy. And it was prepared before Brisbane won the right to the 2032 Olympic Games. It was also prepared before COVID, but it identifies and has a series of provocations externally sourced from people of expertise in a series of nine independent essays leading into an important piece of work. And it's highly relevant 
to the city as in the position it now finds itself in, a very fortuitous position in many ways, that we will have the focus of the world on us and we need to make sure that we are good enough to do the things we need to do to give the city the chance to be, you know, step up to the next level of of performance because the, the fundamentals of Brisbane City are very good, but the, um, the footprint of the city is very large and it's a very difficult city to manage in a lot of ways because it's, it's such a low-density city and it's unique in its river form and unique in its uh, subtropical uh, environment, but great opportunities here. So that was an important piece of work. So New Adelaide Up kept us pretty busy for quite a few years. Yeah, they sound like very important bodies of work and, and some of them, especially the Urban Design Review Panel and Q Design and Brisbane Strategy, seem so perfectly positioned for the transition and the growth that Brisbane as a capital city is going to kind of go through in the next 10 years as new designers come on board to take the, the challenge of what will our city look like hosting the Olympics and what are the unique challenges and opportunities inherent in that. So sounds like whilst those projects span so many years and they're of their time, it sounds like they've set, they set the good groundwork for the future. Well, the other thing, of course, which nobody could, could anticipate was COVID and we've all to a substantial degree, had our lives changed in the last couple of years. Now, the practical implications of that for Brisbane is that we have a very large city council. Not many, uh, well, very few cities in the world have a council the size of Brisbane. The only other one of a comparable size is Auckland that I know of. Brisbane is a big city. You know, we tend to think of it as a, you know, small compared to Sydney and Melbourne, but they are very big cities by any standards. But COVID has changed the way that people use the city. It's changed the way that people work. It's changed the emphasis on what the suburban structure might offer. It's a significant change to the patterns of transport and engagement with people, just like we are here with technology. It's moved that along at a pace and people have changed the way they interact. So in terms of collaboration, in some ways you could argue it's better we're all talking to each other through virtual means, but in practical terms we've lost a lot of face-to-face engagement. And there is value in that, that uh, we perhaps need to understand what we're missing so we can ensure that we get the leverage of the right people in the room at the right time and don't find ourselves sort of left out into when some conversations take place. By us, I'm talking about the profession of architecture. So it's a very interesting time for architects. And I think the energy that you see uh, many practices bringing to uh, the way they can collaborate, uh, and it's broken down barriers to collaborate with people internationally. You can bring people into your team that you wouldn't have even thought of doing before. You can access information and uh, benchmarking. So for the profession, our next step is to ensure that we leverage this in a positive way and we can deliver the best possible capital works projects moving to this big deadline that's only a two-week festival, of course, but it's awful lot of stuff goes into leading into it and it will deliver a lot of legacy uh, for the city uh, for the long term. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Malcolm. And it's one of those catalyst events that the general public is so interested in and 
the opportunity to be able to see how advocacy through design and getting the right people in the room is going to really impact the type of Olympics that we have and also then what it means for the city post Olympics. And there's a real potential there to get the day-to-day person interested in design and kind of opening up that process to them. And something that you were championing champion of for many years was uh, Brisbane Open House, which is an absolutely excellent initiative that brings the general public in to buildings but also into design and talking to architects and hearing about how projects came about before when they were possibly either a green site or a, a renovation of a building. In your opinion, what was the kind of impact that Open House had on the design and design and architectural advocacy when we're talking about direct interface with the general public? Well, Open House is, is one of those rare sort of good news stories that uh, there's really no downside and, and it, it's all upside. But the pandemic has really, really made it very difficult because it's a public gathering event. And the last time we did the big Brisbane weekend, we had 70,000 visits over two days and the fortnight of kind of engagement leading up. And of course, we haven't been able to do that uh, for the last two years. And the momentum has stopped. Uh, The sponsorship, of course, is very hard to raise if you can't guarantee that you're going to do an event. So I'm still chair of Open House and we are grappling with those issues now. And we, we certainly hope we'll be able to well, we're planning to return the event in a smaller way, uh, slightly change uh, the focus of the part of the time of the year that we do it uh, and build and review the success we've had over the 10 years. It's an international event. Uh, There's over 60 cities in the world do it now. And it's very interesting. It's not just focused at designers, although designers love it and they support it and they leverage from it. The, uh, the work they've done and the conversations that they can generate for potential for future work. But the majority of the people who go to Open House is the general public. 95% of the, I think we had about 25,000 people on the, before we stopped doing the, uh, the event, but we had about 25,000 people on the newsletter cycle, 11 or 12,000 on Instagram and similar number on Facebook. We could reach a lot of people very quickly and we ran events where people would come in and hear things that designers think is second nature, really, but it's not. It's not for many people who just are interested in why do things work, how do they work, can we go and have a look at something that we wouldn't have otherwise done. Many of the things in Open House were things you could do, perhaps if you wanted to, at some time, but... The thing about Open House, it focused the mind. It made things happen on a weekend. People would make the decision, well, let's go and look at backstage at QPAC. Let's go and have a look at United Grand Lodge and see how the Masons work in behind their sort of secret rooms or whatever it might be. Let's go and have a look at the new Children's Hospital, which we managed to get the year that it it opened. It coincided with Open House before it had any patients you know, these kind of often things are just once in a lifetime opportunities or they're things that you can regularly uh, bring people to. But the great thing about Open House is the program can change every year. It's not just the same thing. There's always something new and different that you can find or there's perhaps something old and different that you didn't know about. 
And one of the successes of Open House was discovering the, the reservoirs up on Spring Hill. Uh, the Underground Opera now used that space. And I imagine between now and the Olympics that they'll work out an accessible way into them because they're a great asset for the council. But actually nobody in the city even knew they were there, really. And uh, it was Open House that really focused that and we managed to get them opened up and get a small group of people through. Very, very popular, very interesting. The city's full of things like that. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it is a very good initiative. And um, I'm sure leading into the Olympic uh, year, we can go back with Open House and really do a 10-year plan now to try and showcase the city and have the city ready to present itself to you know, large numbers of people in that uh, Olympic period. Yeah, Open House seems like a really natural and organic way to be able to talk about design. You're there purely to talk about the work and the spaces. In your experience, um, what are some of the challenges for effective design advocacy that architects and designers kind of come up against? Well, I think always the big challenge for architects is worrying that if they are too outspoken that they will end up being ostracised in some form or other. Some architects align themselves with uh, public positioning of quite some strength in relation to the climate emergency, for instance, but uh, many others are nervous that if they are seen to be too outspoken that governments or local governments may think that they're risky to engage with. I suspect that's changing generationally. Your generation is a lot more, I think, open to being an advocate. And the the thing about the profession is that we all are advocates for the environment. And where it may have been done more subtly uh, with people of my age in the past, I don't think uh, the younger architects have, they realise they haven't got the time to play around with many of the issues now. You, you have to take a, a strong view. And uh, I mean, a very interesting one, very contemporary one is the announcement this week about the uh, early closure of one of the large power stations and the very interesting reaction that that produced from uh, parts of the community that were kind of horrified that, well, what, what's going to happen? We'll, we'll run out of power. Well, I don't imagine people are going to shut things down unless something's replaced it. And that kind of attitudinal change is happening very quickly. And it's a very challenging time for architects. And it's a great time. I think for architects to lead the debate, to demonstrate the credentials of green design, of sustainable design, uh, thoughtful design in an urban and a social sense. Much of the work we do as architects is urban work. It's not just a project. It's all projects contribute to a big urban setting. And you've got to know about that urban setting to know how your project fits in it. So... I think that's a challenge, though, for some architects that they don't want to be too much in the in the public eye. But there's also, I mean, the thing, architecture is a big profession. There's a lot in it. I think some people learn how to do certain things very well. And once you've learned how to do that, you can't necessarily convert overnight from being a hospital planner to being a, a retail architect. They're perhaps very, very different settings. But Advocacy, understanding good design and good decision-making processes is probably the biggest challenge, I think, 
and getting yourself positioned so that people hear you early. It's go back to the first point. You've got to be in the room early. You've got to create the opportunity to get into that room. Would you say that a few of those those challenges also sometimes masquerading as an opportunity um, will also feed into the, the role of government architects? I know that um, Leah Lang has taken over the role for, for Queensland. I guess more hypothesis, but do you hypothesise that those kind of changing attitudes might define that role for Queensland moving forward? Oh, without doubt. I think um, the difficulties that people see the word architecture and they immediately think buildings. But a lot of what the work of the government architect is is really urban design work and policy work. It's not, you know, we, we're not delivering suites of cultural precincts and courthouses and there are a few major hospital projects coming and certainly I know the, uh, the government architect's office involved in those. But we are always doing projects that, are urban interface projects, and sometimes they're engineering projects, but they really desperately need an urban design assessment as very much part of what they should be meeting as part of their performance criteria. And the role of an office like the government architect is to set the kind of policy documents that you can start the conversation with anybody within government, doesn't matter what the agency is. And if you look at Q-Design as an example, it's got nine topic areas, but within each topic area, there are strategies and various ways of approaching uh, something under that topic. And when you add them all up, you find about 50 topic headings. Now, there's virtually nothing that somebody can't bring to you that you can't find one of those areas to apply to that project to start the conversation. And it may be simple thing like be climate responsive, well, how do you be climate responsive? It's quite often very obvious to us uh, how you start that. Where's north? But where's north is a question most people never ask. It's astounding how often people are amazed to find that the Western sun is a problem when they've finished doing something, when they could have known that before they started. It seems very clearly almost overly simplistic, but having the conversation started a document like Q Design will enable any project to get a conversation going. And then once you've got the conversation going, you can lead it off into all the other things that any good designer would need to do. So it's putting yourself in, in the place and building the confidence. Using these documents, they're there not to have a solution in them, but to point to where a solution may be found. And uh, I think there's a lot more knowledge now around that, I think, generally uh, than there might have been in the past. You look at the two new um, uh, inner city high schools that have uh, just been delivered recently. One of them won the world, world's best school award, I think, at the World Architecture Awards last year. And the other one wasn't finished, but it's uh, a very powerful building sitting very well on the hill at South Brisbane. And you'd be amazed if that one didn't win as well. So these are very important projects for the city to get them right, to get the right brief written, to get the right support from the agencies who are actually delivering them. And, of course, when you get a great outcome, governments like great outcomes. They love the photographs. They love the accolades. They like the politics of it. And I think you'll see there are two very good projects that have redefined 
inner city education in a way that you know this city didn't hadn't had a public high school for 50 years uh, within 5Ks of, of the CBD. So quite fascinating, all of those challenges. There's a real power behind seeing an outcome that was essentially led on its journey by just a good foundation being the Q design. It'll be interesting seeing how when they retrospectively kind of look back and how they set that project up and use it as a bit of a blueprint to move forward, the Q design kind of advocates for, you know, setting a project up, giving a good foundation well, and then this is the, this is the kind of good outcome you'll get. One of the um, things also it's interesting to just to note, I mean, there's nothing, you, nothing special in Q design. It's not in the sense there's no amazing insights in there that no one's ever discovered before. But what is in there is a document that's very carefully delivered in a Queensland setting. All the examples are Queensland examples, all the images are Queensland images. The method of approach, the wording was very carefully thought through because initially I think we thought, well, we could just pick another, there's design guidelines everywhere. Why don't we just pick a good one and put a Queensland cover on it and say, you know, these are, these are the things we should be doing. And you very quickly realise, well, you'll, you don't get buy-in if you do that. You have to actually rethink uh, these things in relation to your place. And one of the great heartening things from Q Design was watching what the Sunshine Coast then went on and did uh, with their design guide, which is, a, apart from being a splendid document, a really beautiful book that's a showcase book about the sun, Sunshine Coast, um, it uses that kind of Q design approach, but it's far more specifically focused on the Sunshine Coast. So it's unique for their place. Uh, and therefore, it's more likely to get buy-in from the local designers, from the local government, and from the people um, who, who live there, that here is something celebrating what they've got to offer, which is a pretty amazing place in which to live with some remarkable um, geographies in it, but you've still got to respect it. So they put that energy in, they made that investment. Uh, we'd love to see one in every local government in Queensland, really, that's unique to their place. Yeah, that, that local, like you say, buy-in and that connection and even if you weren't involved in its creation, that sense of ownership and pride in, of, in place is something I think everyone understands, not just designers and planners so it's it's interesting to hear that that's kind of a hallmark of like a successful piece of policy or um, advocacy really were, were there any other kind of successful advocacy elements that you were in, involved in during your career well there are a couple of others I I, I think are worth uh, noting uh, I, I mentioned the inner city high schools and that was quite a specific engagement with the Department of Education, I touched on at the beginning the Density and Diversity Done Well competition, which has morphed into a series of social housing design guidelines in the Department of Housing, which used to be in public works. It's now in a different department. and I've lost track of what the department names are now, but it's no longer with uh, public works. But the Demonstration projects that came out of that competition, uh, the idea that social housing can be well designed, it's not 
it's not too good, you know, for, you know, you used to hear that you can't do a good school, you can't do a, you know, good social housing because, you know, everyone will want one. There are a couple of great projects in there that are economic, small scale, very thoughtful, and that the examples will flow from them to they can apply to every project. And there are some really quite tough sites that social housing have to engage with, but it doesn't mean they can't be well designed. And so I think that was a very important area. There was a lot of pushback uh, within the bureaucracy uh, to achieve some of those things. And that's part of often the problem that nobody likes to do something differently to the way they've always done it. And But equally, we had, and it's bound up in the same way, we had a long-term, and it continues, I'm sure, dialogue with the Department of Health when Jeanette Young was um, Chief Health Officer. And we ran a, a program, which I'm sure is still ongoing, called Healthy People, Healthy Places. And it's really... Again, it's about thinking about how you design for people's health, how you encourage walking, how you get deep planting, how you get the nature of you know, a view into a landscape, how you actually deliver materiality that nurtures people, makes them feel safe. I mean, there's so many things that as designers we know, but the Department of Health doesn't have that mindset. They have programs to deliver and buildings to do for a certain budget that's always got to have a big car park nearby so that people can safely get to and from work and I made the point at one stage to the Department of Health they were the biggest car park operator in Queensland and you know that stopped the conversation for a while and I think they they had to agree that they that they probably were now the point about that is well perhaps we should think about what the car parks look like and how they relate to the campuses that they're sitting in and what will be the change of attitude to public transport with personal mobility devices becoming more frequent. You know, these all flow through to environments and places and safety and do we need to build the sort of number of car parks that we need, all these sorts of things. Uh, so that's a, that's a program that I'm hopeful will keep, just keep going and it will it will slowly develop momentum and hopefully you'd end up with a Q Design Health. I, I, I know there's a Q Design Heritage in, in in preparation. And so you take those principles and you dive a little bit deeper and you focus it on a particular uh, sector type, but it's all based around asking the right design questions early on so that you get the best outcome. So it's perpetual. Uh, engagement, though, because people change constantly, programs change constantly, ministers, departments, it's always changing. And yet good design doesn't change. The principles are still always the same principles, the same good questions need to be asked and the same follow through needs to occur. But you've got to stay the distance to make sure that it doesn't get just watered down, which so often happens in all project work, that uh, you start with a strong idea, but you don't necessarily finish with it. I'm getting a great deal of pleasure looking at the two high schools in, in the city, knowing that they've run that race and they have delivered strong outcomes, and you can't take that away. They're there. And a lot of, you know, thousands of uh, kids will benefit from that. In the same way as you think of all those fine brick public schools and some high schools that were delivered by the Department of Education 100 years ago. And these buildings were 
substantial buildings. They were not cheap buildings. They were very well built, uh, and they're still all being used. And uh, you know, one or two, I think, have had significant extensions or change, perhaps some of the use. But fundamentally, the right decisions were made at the time that that delivered robust, flexible buildings that have served thousands and thousands of school kids uh, all over the state very well. Now, I'm sure there's quite a few demountables that you wouldn't be quite so enthusiastic about. So the the value is in thinking the problem through and delivering the right outcome. And it sounds like that those kind of documents are really about empowering all members of a project team on government side, design side, consulting side, just empowering everyone to be using the same language and talking about the same ideas. And you really jump over a lot of hurdles quite quickly around advocating for good design because everyone's starting from the same kind of base, which is a really great way to start a, bringing a team together to sign up and agree to deliver the same outcome. Obviously, we're part of Imagine, which is Emerging Architects and Graduates Network. So we're representing graduates, people who've just graduated their Masters of Architecture, moving into the design profession as emerging professionals, early registration, talking to you, Malcolm, with all your experience throughout the years, but also your experience in collaborating with so many different groups of people and groups of designers and professionals. Do you have any advice or um, hopes for the next generation to help them feel empowered about advocacy and feeling that they could tools in which they can get themselves out there early in their profession from an advocacy point of view? The thing I would really push more than anything is that you have to be passionate about design to achieve good outcomes. No project I've ever seen that is excellent in its final presentation is delivered by ordinary processes. All great projects have people that go beyond just the day-to-day challenges of whatever it might be. So passion is important. but And that's partly just being interested, interested in the world and the knowledge of what's happening around you. But the fact that Imagine exists, so it certainly didn't exist when I was a young architect, uh, there was nothing like the range of interested organisational structures that can provide support and energy and enthusiasm. I love watching the, uh, the energy of uh, emerging professionals and some of the calibre of the work. You have mag- you know, magnificent technology to help you. You've got the kind of visualisation stuff that uh, we could only ever dream of. It's just, it's all there. But, you know, even the best visualisations in the world still won't deliver great buildings unless people understand the problem they're trying to solve and the setting in which they're trying to solve it. And the uh, the brief for whatever user group or groups that, that you're trying to achieve. And it's a, look, it's a very immersive profession. I think it's designed as something that's always got something else you have to do. Uh, even though the idea, the idea might be quite simple, but delivering it is uh, is is all encompassing uh, for a great many projects. But I think it's great the fact that you having uh, you're interested enough to have a chat and that you have a structure around podcasts and support for young emerging graduates. I think that's uh, very heartening for the standards that the profession must keep delivering. And you know it's hard work. 
I wish the profession charged a bit more for its work. I think it uh, it underrates itself. Really, we are we we like to tell ourselves we're not essential. I think architects are essential, and you have to have that understanding of why, so you can make the point when you get the opportunity uh, of the value of a skilled design professional. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Malcolm, and thank you for sharing your experiences and also for all the work that you've done uh, advocating for better places, better spaces, and also better policy (laughs) that will uh, stand the state in good stead moving into the future. We look forward to see what you're, you're going to be doing next. Yes, well, a a bit of drawing as well. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Thank you again. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our guest in this episode, architect Malcolm Middleton. We're very grateful for your time and thankful for your advocacy for architecture while you were working in government and for all the other contributions you've made to the architecture profession. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Genevieve Vella, Sam McQueenie, Myron Montero, Rohanna Fullerton and Bridie O'Toole. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.